The scripture reading today is found in Acts 23, verses 6 through 10. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there was no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. This is the word of the Lord. Dana mentioned some folks that he didn't recognize uh, sitting behind us and um, thrilled to have the McCarn family with us this morning. Um, Coach Phil uh, coached the, the basketball team that our boys played on this season. We finished up a tournament this, uh, this weekend and, and they surprised us this morning by, by coming and, uh, wor- to worship with us. So we're gl- so glad y'all are here. Thank you so much for, for coming and, and blessing us with your presence. Um, before we open God's Word together, I do want to um, mention um, what's happening in Ukraine and uh, just take a, a moment to, um, in, in a few moments, to pray for them. Uh, but I do want to mention, make you aware of um, an effort uh, by Samaritan's Purse uh, to reach out to that country and help them in this great time of need. Um, we partner with Samaritan's Purse uh, throughout the year, and they are already mobilized and in countries surrounding Ukraine, and um, they are assessing the situation, trying to figure out how they can um, best uh, be used to help not only the church in Ukraine, but also uh, just the, the citizens in general. Um, so we, we ask you to continue praying for this situation, uh, but also if you feel compelled to give, um, Samaritan's Purse is a great option for that, and I would uh, commend them to you and, and uh, encourage you to give through them. Now, a couple of ways that you can do that. You can make a check payable to Trinity Church, and on the memo line, uh, simply write Ukraine. 100% of that will, will go directly to Samaritan's Purse, um, and then they will distribute it as they see fit. Um, you can go online to our website uh, and, and make a contribution and just in the notes put Ukraine, uh, or you can go directly to Samaritan's Purse website uh, and donate there. I was looking at their website last night and uh, saw how um, they were in the process as as all the tension was was uh, bubbling up and, and coming to a head. 
They were in the process of, of distributing 600,000 Operation Christmas Child uh, boxes in Ukraine. Um, I'm not sure how far into that process they got, but it's, it's very likely that there are children in Ukraine this morning uh, with shoeboxes in their possession um, that have clearly articulated the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and their families. Um, and if that's the case, praise God, right? Because who knows, maybe some of the boxes that we uh, made possible here at Trinity Church are in Ukraine. Uh, and if that's the case, to God be the glory. Um, but either way, um, there, are, um, there are a number, 600,000 is a hefty number, a number of boxes of hope uh, that are targeted for that place. So uh, that's one prayer that I think we could ask the Lord this morning is that he would use those boxes um, to share the gospel uh, in that country. Um, certainly, uh, there are many other prayers that we can um, lift up for them, and, and we're going to do uh, some of those uh, right now. So, so let's pray. Father, we do come this morning with uh, heavy hearts for the, the people in Ukraine. Uh, Father, I, I don't pretend to understand border disputes and, and feuds over land, but what is clear is that this is a, an unprovoked war and that there are men and women, and boys and girls who are in harm's way and some have even perished because of a man who is bent on his wickedness. So I do I want to lift up right now um, Vladimir Putin to you, Father, and I, I pray for that man's soul. I pray that you would convict him of his wickedness, of his sin, and that, Father, he would repent of his sin and turn to Christ for salvation. I pray that you would move his hand, Father, from the assaults that he is waging on Ukraine. Father, we pray for those in country who right now at this moment um, are despairing. Maybe they have lost everything they own. Um, some have no doubt lost family members and, and we want to lift them up, Father, and pray that you would minister to them. We also want to pray for your church in country. Father, we pray for the pastors and their families of, of your church that, that they would, in the days to come, be used of you to proclaim and herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, you often use tragedy like this to grow the church, and we pray that the church would flourish in Ukraine. We pray that from this there would be untold fruit that bubbles up as a result of this harsh situation. So, Father, we do ask that the hope of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed and understood in Ukraine. And we do pray that you would use those shoeboxes, those that were able to be distributed. Father, I pray that they would be an encouragement to the children who have them in their possession and the families of those children. Father, help us as we here try to process all that's going on. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to pray in the days to come. 
And I pray now that as we open your word, that you would uh, tune our hearts, uh, that we would continue worshiping. As we've just finished worshiping by singing, Father, that we would continue worshiping by engaging with your word and with this revelation that you uh, have before us this morning. May we see the truth that is there. All of your scripture is truth. So, Father, may it do its work in our hearts this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 23. Uh, Acts chapter 23. We're returning this morning to our series in Acts uh, to the ends of the earth. And the text that we're looking at this morning explains how Paul is positioned to take the message of Jesus to yet another city on his campaign to complete the mission given him by Jesus. So if you remember the last couple of chapters, Paul seems to be in the throes of one conflict after another with his adversaries. It looks at times as though Paul's life is on the line, and in reading the text, there are times where we're left wondering if if Paul will survive. Paul seems to be battling with those around him, but, but those skirmishes are not the only war that Paul is involved in. As he mentions in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In Acts 23, Luke shows us how Paul was uniquely outfitted to fight his battles. He was battle-ready. That's been a a theme of of ours on the basketball team all season, and and it's fitting that the McCarns are here this morning when I would use that in this sermon. Paul was battle-ready and equipped to survive. Three main themes permeate our passage today, and I believe they show us how Paul battled his enemies, both seen and unseen. So what are they? The human conscience, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and the assurance that comes as a result of trusting in God's sovereignty. So friends, if we want to battle well like Paul, we must first consider the priority of the Christian's conscience. So this is our first point, the priority of the Christian's conscience. If you were to parachute into the action of Acts 23 and not know what had immediately preceded the events that you were watching unfold, you would wonder what in the world has made everyone so mad at Paul. I mean, it's crazy what is happening around him. As a quick review of the last few chapters and to set the stage for the action that we're seeing here in Acts 23, let's remember that since Paul has returned to Jerusalem, things have been challenging to say the least. In chapter 21, Paul had been kicked out of the temple and beaten by the Jews. He'd been rescued by the Roman soldiers who arrested him and took him back to the barracks. He was given permission to speak from the steps of the barracks and ended up inciting his hearers in chapter 22. He was taken into the barracks where the tribune, Claudius Lysias, called for Paul to be examined by flogging 
He wanted to figure out what was going on. He wanted to get to the bottom of this. But Paul revealed that he was a Roman citizen. And so Lysias ordered the Sanhedrin to meet, again, so that we could figure out what in the world is happening here. Claudius Lysias wanted to get to the bottom of this issue. And that's where we pick up today. The the Sanhedrin has been assembled and Claudius Lysias escorts Paul to the trial so that he could see firsthand what all this disturbance had been about. So look at verse 1 with me of Acts chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. The first thing Paul says to the Sanhedrin with the Roman tribune looking on is that he has fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience. The state of Paul's conscience was significant enough to him that he thought that that should be the first thing he mentioned in this important trial before the Sanhedrin with the Roman tribune looking on. I want to ask you to put yourself in Paul's shoes. If you were fighting for survival, would your first thought be to use your conscience as the grounds for why you should be freed? I have a clean conscience, I assure you. Now, can I be escorted to the door? We will consider what what Luke is pointing us to with Paul and his conscience. But before we do that, I I first want to mention a a book to you that, that I would commend on this topic of conscience. In their book, Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley do a masterful job of assessing what the Bible has to say about the conscience. Paul's mention of his good conscience might come across to us like an insignificant detail, but I would argue that this topic, the, the topic of the Christian's conscience, is among the most important issues in the church that we spend the least amount of time thinking about. So what is the conscience? How would you define it? Nacelli and and Crowley define the conscience as your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And that's a very simplistic definition. They go on to note this awareness of what we believe is right and wrong. It produces different results for people based on, on different moral standards. And they also show how one's conscience can change and that conscience functions as a guide, a monitor, a witness, and a judge. So why is conscience important? Because a person can only be as strong as their conscience is in accordance with God's ideal. And, I'd say furthermore, a nation can only be as strong as the collective consciences of the people who live there. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 32, speaking of a a group of people who have rejected God and His expectations of mankind. Listen to what he says. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen carefully to to what he says next. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul's letter to the Romans was written nearly 2,000 years ago, and it sounds like it could have been penned yesterday. This is not just a modern-day problem for America or ancient Rome. One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture was written over a 1,000 years before Paul wrote those words that we just heard from Romans. And the very last verse in the book of Judges says this, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So if we operate off of the definition from Nacelli and Crowley that conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right or wrong, a few thoughts come to mind like, number one, we instinctively know there's a difference between what is right and what is wrong. Number two, we each determine what we believe is right and what is wrong. And number three, our understanding of right and wrong may or may not be in line with God's decree of what is right and what is wrong. So with these things in mind, let's look back at our text. Paul announces to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. We might wonder, how can Paul say that he has fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience, knowing what we know of Paul and his life before Christ? How is it that Paul could say he was doing right when in other places like 1 Timothy 1.15, he would admit that he was the foremost of sinners? James Boyce, in his commentary on Acts, says this, It required the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ to show him how wrong he was. Boyce continues by saying, But in those early days, Paul did not think he was wrong. He fervently believed he was right. That is why he could say when he summed up his life in Judaism, As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. He wasn't faultless in God's sight, but so far as he knew, he had lived in good conscience. So I want to give you a little more of Boyce's words from his commentary because they're so helpful. Listen to how he finishes this thought on how the Lord Jesus shapes our conscience by the Spirit through the Word of God. Boyce says, while conscience is something to which we can and should listen It is not an infallible guide to right conduct. Conscience will tell you that you should not do what is wrong and that you should do what is right, but conscience alone cannot tell you what is right or what is wrong. It's only the Bible, the written Word of God, that can teach you that. When you have the Bible and when the Holy Spirit is shining on its pages, teaching you what you should do, then conscience will tell you that you ought to do it. But if you do not have the Word of God, then even though conscience will tell you to do the right thing, you will not know what the right thing is, and you will err, as Paul had done. 
Interestingly, the, the Sanhedrin doesn't commend Paul for his good conscience. Quite opposite, Paul gets assaulted. Look at verse 2. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So there's a great deal that could be said about these verses, but I want to focus on how Paul has a keen awareness of his conscience. Contrasted with Ananias, the high priest, who seemingly does not. Notice how Ananias reacted to Paul's statement on his good conscience. He ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth. So why did Paul react so sharply to Ananias by saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall? Look at the second half of verse 3. Paul says, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. The problem Paul had with Ananias was that as a member of the Sanhedrin, he was responsible for being a steward of the law for the good of Israel. Yet he was neglecting and ignoring the law only to abuse Israel's people. Paul may have been referring to Leviticus 19.15 because a, a contemporary interpretation of that verse was understood to say this, He who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. The contrast between Paul and Ananias was stark. Paul was a man who was striving to live faithfully and obediently to God as a Pharisee, who was now focused on planting churches and training pastors. Ananias, a Sadducee and high priest, had the reputation of being a cruel leader, though his name meant, listen to this, Yahweh has been gracious, Ananias was anything but. The Jewish historian Josephus described Ananias as insolent, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. Paul was a sinner who had been saved by God's grace, and this once cruel man who was who thought he was obeying God, was now truly living according to God's word. Paul's conscience was being formed by God's instruction of what was truly right and wrong. From everything we can gather, Ananias was not living according to his understanding of what was right and what was wrong. Let me add briefly, if you're wondering about the accusation against Paul for insulting God's high priest... There are several good explanations for why Paul was not guilty of intentionally doing this. He had just said his conscience was clean, so we cannot conclude that Paul, knowing it was wrong to speak evil of the the ruler of Israel, would do so. So why did he do it? Some have suggested that Paul's eyesight was so poor that he he couldn't uh, make out who was speaking. Some have suggested Paul wouldn't have known who the high priest was. Remember, he had spent a lot of time outside of Jerusalem. 
Others have suggested the lighting in the room would have been dim, and, and still others have said Ananias probably didn't have his priestly garments on due to the, the gathering being called last minute by this Roman tribune. So whatever the explanation, we must conclude that Paul genuinely didn't know it was Ananias, or else he would not have found himself in violation of Exodus twenty-two, twenty-eight. So all of this further underscores how neglectful of his conscience Ananias was. Right? Paul could not tell by his actions that he was the high priest. So to nail this down, paying attention to our conscience is really, really important. It is vital to survival for the Christian. Not only does it govern how you will live as a citizen in your country, it shows how you are living as a citizen of God's kingdom. And Paul linked his conscience to, to his duty to God, and, and we know from Paul's testimony that he was not only a dutiful citizen of Israel, he was a dutiful citizen of the kingdom of God. So, friends, is your conscience in line with what God says is right and wrong. A good or a clean conscience is one that is trained and, and tuned to living by what God has said is right and what He has said is wrong. Paying attention to our conscience must be a priority if we want to win spiritual battles. So I mentioned earlier that, that we here at Trinity want to pay more attention to our consciences. We believe training our consciences not only helps us to be good citizens, it helps us to be more loving church members. If you've been through Membership Matters, you've heard us teach on what some call theological triage. We all have theological beliefs and convictions that we hold near and dear to our hearts. And these beliefs and convictions, they are important to us, as they should be. Theological triage, it helps us to sort out these beliefs and convictions by helping us to order them rightly so that we can hold our convictions while at the same time loving our neighbor here. I could say more about this, but we have to move on. If you're interested in, in that book, uh, Conscience, I can uh, tell you how to get it. Or if you want to talk more about theological triage, if you want one of our handouts that we've prepared, uh, I would love to share that with you after the service or later in the week. Just reach out to me. The trained conscience is high on the priority list of weapons of spiritual warfare. What we'll see next in verses 6 to 10 is just as important. The second thing we'll see in Acts 23 is the centrality of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's the second point this morning, the centrality of the hope of the resurrection of of the dead. Look at verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. Listen to what he says. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8, a little editorial note here. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these 
things. Verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So I want to make a quick observation here and then get to the heart of the matter. It seems pretty obvious that Paul made a strategic move here to excite, to put it lightly, and to use to his advantage the theological differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul must have had a pretty good idea that this statement that he made about standing trial because of the resurrection would be like setting off a bomb between the two groups. However, the fact that Paul may have been strategic in in placing this theological bomb between the Pharisees and the Sadducees doesn't change the fact that Paul's statement is true. There's no harm in being strategic. I mentioned earlier that the topic of the Christian's conscience may be one of the most important issues not being discussed in the church, but I also believe the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is, is one of the most important doctrines of the church, of the Christian faith, that is not being embraced by Christians. The resurrection changes everything. Think about how it changed the way Jesus' family viewed him. Our Tuesday morning men's Bible studies currently uh, working through Jude, and a couple of weeks ago, in preparing for the, the first installment, I was just struck by the opening of Jude's letter, by, by the very first few words of verse 1. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. What's so significant about that? Do you remember how Jesus' family members saw him in Mark chapter 3. In verse 21, we read this. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Some translations say they went to seize him. For they said, he is out of his mind. You ever felt that way about one of your family members? (laughs) Um, Jude, his half-brother of Jesus. Jude There was a time in Jude's life where he thought Jesus, the Lord of the universe, was crazy. Jesus' family moved from thinking he was out of his mind to believing that he was Lord and King. Literally, some of Jesus' family went from thinking he was mad, not angry mad, but crazy mad, to believing he was Messiah. So what changed? It was Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection shifted not only the beliefs of those around him, it completely changed the trajectory of some of their lives. So Jesus' resurrection forced Jude and and others to move from dismissing and disregarding Jesus to calling him Lord and calling themselves his servant. Some of the brothers of the Lord that called him crazy would trade in their fishing nets and carpentry tools for their roles as pastors and church leaders, giving their lives for the body of Christ. We can't underestimate the power 
of the doctrine of the resurrection. After all, it is the hope of the resurrection of the dead that all of Christianity hinges on. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say he was on trial because he was a perceived troublemaker, because he was trying to plant churches, or ultimately because he was a follower of Jesus? He has identified the hope of the resurrection of the dead as the one thing that aggravates the powers of darkness to the point Jerusalem is in an uproar over the man who God would use to take the good news of Jesus all the way to Rome. Friends, how important is the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead to you? Do you see it as some stuffy theological point that doesn't impact your life? Or, like Paul, do you see it as the one thing, that one of the most important things about your life in Christ? In his magnum opus on the resurrection, Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, says this, beginning in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, in other words, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Such hopelessness. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I believe, like Paul, it is the hope of the resurrection of the dead that arms us for battle in this life. It is the hope of the resurrection of the dead that equips us to take on the challenges and uncertainties of this life, knowing that the end of this life is not the end. One of my favorite passages from the book of Job is found in verses 25 to 27. It's in chapter 19. Many of you are familiar with verse 25. There's even been a song or two written about it. I know that my Redeemer lives, right? And that in the end, He will stand on the earth. I wonder how familiar you are with verses 26 and 27. Listen to Job's hope of the resurrection of the dead. After he says, again, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth. Verse 26 and 27, listen. And after my skin has been destroyed. In other words, after I've laid in the tomb and all that remains are bones. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. And Job ends that by saying, how my heart yearns within me. Job had such a healthy view of the doctrine of the resurrection that not only did he believe that his Redeemer would stand on the earth, his hope of the resurrection of the dead gave him the joyful certainty that he would be raised from the dead and in his newly resurrected body he would see the Messiah. Friends, this is awesome news. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us we do not need to fear death. I know many of you have experienced the death of loved ones. As recently as this past week, some of you have said goodbye. Or, or you, I know, 
Some of you are expecting to have to do so very soon. But friends, in Christ, the goodbye is only temporary. I referenced 1 Corinthians 15 earlier, and I, I, I remarked that it was hopeless, right? I stopped short of one of the most exciting verses in all of Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, those who are in Christ will be too. The hope of the resurrection of the dead will no longer one day be just a hope because it will be realized. All who are in Christ have so much to look forward to. And, and this hope of the resurrection of the dead points us beyond our present trials and tribulations. The hope of the resurrection of the dead is central to the Christian life. So a good or clean conscience according to God's standards of right and wrong and the hope of the resurrection of the dead. These are two essential weapons for the Christian engaged in spiritual warfare. We see one more weapon Paul has in his arsenal and it's this, the assurance of God's sovereignty. The assurance of God's sovereignty. And this point is found in verses 11 through 35. Verse 11. The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Verse 12, the next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. Paul simply cannot catch a break. How many times before have we seen this where the deck seems to be stacked in favor of God's enemies? But notice how Luke positions verse 12 in verse 12 that the bad news comes that a group of men have bound themselves with an oath of starvation until they see to it that Paul is killed. Do you see when that threat comes? It comes one verse after the Lord Jesus himself assures Paul that he will testify about Jesus in Rome. So here's a spoiler alert. Oath or no oath, 40 men who have pledged to not eat or drink until they have taken Paul's life is no threat at all to our sovereign God. It's shown to be such an insignificant threat that God uses a little boy to thwart the plans of these would-be murderers. Verses 16 to 21 tell how Paul's nephew just happened to be in the right place at the right time to hear the plans to kill Paul, and, and how Paul's nephew was able to gain the ear of the tribune and commander Claudius Lysias. The commander could have disregarded Paul's nephew, but under God's sovereign direction, 
the commander not only listened to the boy, he acted to protect Paul. In verses 22 to 33, Luke shows the, the lengths to which Claudius Lysias went to in order uh, to make sure Paul was delivered safely to Caesarea, where he would be able to plead his case to Governor Felix. The military force used to move Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea was pretty impressive. Right? 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, which amounted to almost half of the Roman forces in Jerusalem at that time. So that's an unexpected response to a little boy's report. Once Paul is safely delivered to Caesarea, Governor Felix reads the letter that Claudius Lysias has sent along with Paul, and the chapter concludes with verse 35, where we hear Governor Felix say, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So there are several things that we can conclude from this display of God's sovereignty in Acts 23. First, it is impossible, hear me clearly, it is impossible for God's will to be upended. Jesus said Paul would testify about him in Rome, and, and you don't have to know Greek to understand this. That means Paul was going to testify about Jesus in Rome, and nothing could stop that, not even 40 hungry men. Mankind's hatred and passions cannot thwart the will of God. So, friends, we have to believe this every day of our lives. As powerful as he thinks he is, Vladimir Putin cannot thwart the will of God. It is incredibly hard for us to wrap our heads around the ugly images that we're seeing out of Ukraine. But Putin is not sovereign. He is limited to do only what God will allow. We can't possibly know how God is using what's happening in Ukraine for his glory and the good of those who love him. But we must trust that God is at work. We must pray for the church in Ukraine. Friends, we must pray for them that God would use his people there to spread the gospel in these trying times. A second thing to think about with respect to the assurance that comes as a result of God's sovereignty in Acts 23 is this. God used what appeared to be a threat to his sovereignty, don't miss this, as the very thing that would facilitate the fulfillment of his promise. It was the plot to kill Paul that motivated Claudius Lysias to move Paul to Caesarea under heavy guard, which was one city closer to Paul being moved to Rome where he would testify about Jesus before Caesar. So there are many other things that could be said about the assurance that comes from God's sovereignty, but the last one I'll mention here is this. Though we don't know what tomorrow holds, for those who are in Christ, we know we are secure in the Lord. It was everything I had in me not to say, though we don't know what holds tomorrow, we know who holds tomorrow, that I didn't go there. Look, there is no guarantee that our wishes and desires will be fulfilled, but you can bet your life God's will 
will be accomplished. And isn't that where we want to be? I mean, aren't we willing to set our earthly, earthly desires and, and wills aside so that God's plan for his kingdom can be fulfilled? If you wonder what happened to the 40 men who took an oath to starve until they had killed Paul, well, they are very, very hungry. <laughs> Did they die of starvation because they swore against our sovereign God? I, I don't know. Some commentators say there were loopholes to get out of such silly oaths, so they, they probably ate in shame at some point after they realized that Paul was outside of their reach. And man, what a miserable meal that would have been. Can you imagine? But, but again, I, I don't want us to miss Luke's neon sign here in Acts 23, in verses 11 and 12, right? Um, we can apply this to our lives. The Lord Jesus makes a promise. The next day, 40 men say that they're not going to eat or drink until they kill you. Right? There's great application, friends, for us there. We must hold on to the promises of God and know that not one single solitary promise will fall away. It will be seen through to conclusion. A good conscience according to God's ideals, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and a rock-solid assurance of God's sovereignty. These were Paul's weapons of war when it came to spiritual battle. So how prepared are you for the war that is imminent? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you so much for the hope that comes along with it. We thank you for truth. Because in a world of lies and mixed messages and false narratives, your word stands in stark contrast. Thank you for the clarity. Thank you for the promises. Thank you for Jesus. Father, it's my prayer today that for those who are in Christ, I ask that you would help us all to think deeply about our consciences. May we pay them attention. May we train them to help us in accordance with what you have decreed is right and wrong. May we not neglect our consciences. May our consciences not become seared. But Father, help us to be concerned with what you have clearly told us we should and should not do. Father, I pray that you would help those of us who are in Christ to see as, as our foundation in Christ the importance of this doctrine of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And may we live bold lives, not fearing death, knowing 
like Job said, that we will one day again stand and see with our eyes the Lord Jesus. And lastly, Father, for those in Christ, and may we not neglect the comfort that comes from knowing that you are sovereign and that your will cannot be upended. Father, for those who are not in Christ, for those who have not turned to Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sin and repented of their sin, I pray that today would be the day for none of those things that, that Paul used in spiritual warfare are available to anyone outside of Christ. So I, I do pray, Father, that those who are here today who are separated by their sin would bow the knee to King Jesus and that they would take on a conscience that can be trained according to what you have decreed to be right and wrong, that they would be able to latch on to the hope of the resurrection of the dead and that they too would bank the rest of their lives on the assurance that comes from your sovereignty. Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.